Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. Now in today's episode I have a chat to Gareth E. Rees, who's author of the brand new book Unofficial Britain as well as Car Park Life, Marshland and Stone Tide. Now if you haven't heard of Gareth before, his work focuses on finding magic, myth and folklore in everyday, liminal and unloved places. He's also the creator of the website Unofficial Britain, which is home to writing, art and so forth that offers unusual perspectives on the landscape. I was really happy to get a chance to have a chat with Gareth as I really love his writing style and his approach to the exploration of the sort of mundane places. Now before we get into today's episode I will give you the usual rundown of some of the things we discuss. So we begin with where Gareth's fascination with everyday places started and then we get into some of his explorations of retail and multi-story car parks and the differences between them. We discuss the theatre and personal mythology that goes on within hospitals, morning lost buildings, modern day thin places, rubbish tips and finally whether the majority of society will one day begin to romanticise roundabouts, motorways, industrial estates and the like. Anyway, we'll crack on with today's episode now and I really hope you enjoy it. So Gareth, was there kind of a specific moment that triggered your fascination with the everyday mundane or have you kind of always appreciated what it has to offer? My interest is probably more with the experience of place and that happens to be in this book, some of my recent stuff, mundane, what you people would call mundane. Uh, because I've I've looked looked at everyday spaces where we live, but the theory of the book is really that nothing is mundane if you look closely. So in the book, I talk about how the things I remember as a child. So pebble dashed walls of the house that I lived in in Scotland, uh, the canal in Kirk and Tillich, the town where I lived, uh, the drains on the way out from my primary school where I used to shove my uh, of unwanted bits of artwork from primary school, the pylons, the water towers. These things I remember around the outskirts of Glasgow and Kirk and Tulloch, where I lived, as, I guess, fantastical things that looked interesting to me. Uh, I just remember them as a child. I don't think at the time I'd, I'd locked into that as an idea. I just think that when you're children, you don't really order anything into authentic and non-authentic or natural or unnatural or beautiful and ugly. You just see all things as things that exist. So when I... This was a feeling, obviously, I had as a child, but I didn't really think about it, obviously, for, for decades until... Um, I first started exploring the marshes. I guess the trigger was Hackney Marshes, which was the subject of my first book, and which was um, where I used to walk the dog at lunchtime. And I'd just been existing in London in nightclubs and bars and workspaces and office buildings and friends' houses for for over a decade. And uh, when I slowed down my life a bit and got married, I moved to Clapton, right on the edges of the the Lee River on the marshes in in the Lee Valley. And that was when I started to explore this really odd semi-industrial former heartland of the, of the East End uh, mixed with these ancient marshlands and uh, sort of long-horned cattle and herons and cormorants and seabirds and all kinds of strange animals and outcasts and characters. And this place was a kind of, I guess, an, an everyday place in the sense that it was somewhere where people were just hanging out, but it was also this magical land. And I think that at that point I began to realise it reminded me of some of the things that I grew up in as, as a child living on the edge of Perkin Tillich and then Glossop. Um, yeah, it began, it triggered a, 
it triggered those childhood experiences and I felt like a child and I kind of tried to put that into my early writing this childlike wonder with places that are on your doorstep yeah no I love your approach because I think obviously we say mundane a lot for those kinds of things but they're anything but mundane and I think a lot of people I've talked to on here and myself included doesn't find them mundane and I think it's that thing of people think oh it's it's ugly it's not beautiful and therefore it's there's nothing to be found in it but yet they're such like storied places there's so much you can find in these kinds of regular everyday places because there's so much happening and so much life that did happen there and I almost feel like we need to come up with a new word because it's such a shame everyone just is like oh yeah boring mundane unless you're kind of into this kind of thing you don't exactly appreciate it it is it is hard to get across and it is because it's just it's just objects if you flatten everything out all objects are just objects and they all hum with the electrons and atoms and they're all really why is one more interesting than another why is a styrofoam chip less valid or interesting than an oak leaf um but we have this i guess aesthetic uh, which is why this is this i call it unofficial britain because although there's people like us who have been into this for ages i wanted to try and get maybe get into the more public arena where people do still find this quite strange the fact that we would even be talking about this I think you will because actually I've recommended this book to a few of my friends because I'm like this is a good starting point for them because it's it's very readable and it's very relatable. I think they can probably see elements of their own day-to-day life and places they go because you obviously do you write about industrial estates, hospitals, car parks, all that kind of thing and it's like places we go every day and hopefully they might have a different perspective on it now. Um I actually did want to say to you in terms of the car parks because you obviously did do car park life and you've wrote about um, multi-story car parks in your new book do you kind of have a preference to like which you prefer because they are quite different when you write about them because like the retail car parks I got the vibe they're more of that you see that primal human behavior they're driving around with their cars and then the multi-story is a bit more you compare them to modern castles modern day castles and do you kind of have a, one that you prefer more writing about I think with car park life, I because the obvious choice would be to do the multi-stories because they're so full of drama. There's this the beautiful brutalism about them. People already have Instagram feeds full of them and they were quite clearly almost romantic structures. Just look at the what happened with the Welbeck car park in, uh, in central London, which was a huge campaign. It was going to be knocked down and there was a huge campaign to save it. It didn't work, but the people campaigned to save it were saying this is a historically important building and it's beautiful and it has a function so when i wrote car park life i thought i'm going to avoid the obvious um and make it more difficult for myself but try and i i thought there was a difference maybe between those that car the car park as a as a place and then this car park in car park life which is those really nebulous areas around supermarkets and especially in um, retail parks where it's it's the bit in between something and it it's not really defined and it's just a sort of petri dish of strange human behaviors and this sort of busy capitalist consumerist culture going about its business like bees in a hive and i felt that was that was what i wanted to write about i wanted to write about almost it's almost an extension of the supermarket it's almost an extension of the town that you live in it's a thoroughfare it's a it's a place that everyone is very familiar with but no one's ever walked around or even i don't think photographed in the same way as the multi stories uh, it was it's, it felt like much more like a like going to space or going somewhere it really was you know a lot of people have done uh, industrial estates and the factories and the edges of towns and i thought has anyone really gone into inner space just gone and explored 
the weird bit next to Tesco's in the center of a kind of not that interesting town. I thought if, if I could find something of interest there, that would sort of prove my point that there is no boring place or there is no space that doesn't say something about us. Yeah, no, there's definitely a difference, isn't there, with the retail car parks, like you say, the multi-story, they do have a lot more attention. And I think when you go in them, you tend to find multi-stories more sinister and scary because they're dark and, you know, there's a bit more dingy, There's they smell and there's teens hanging around and there's that stereotype of going through them late at night and everything. And and you kind of don't get that vibe with the retail car parks at all because I think, because like you say, there's such a hustle and bustle of activity, but there is when you really te- pay close attention that there is so much to see and you like had some really interesting explorations when you wrote uh, in that book actually it was it was strange because I, I i was my idea was that any car park would be interesting so i thought oh god this is going to be one of these things where i find a few and then i go to one and i come away with nothing and it will sort of ruin my theory and will i then just edit that out of the book and pretend that they're all interesting but it never it really never was the case i could have probably put all of the ones i investigated into them but there was yeah, like the one in the one in Plymouth where I found Sir Francis Drake's Leet, this waterway that was running between KFC and B and Q, which has all been preserved there, um, but was also the site of a reservoir in the early 1900s. Uh, that was pretty amazing. I genuinely didn't know that was there. That's kind of a fantastic moment when you're just in the middle of this retail park where everyone's just busy buying paint and pizzas and sort of shuffling with the bags, and you're there sort of high fiving your mate because you found this sort of ancient waterway. I mean, which was there, it's signposted, it's not a complete secret. It's just no one looks in the car park and no one really explores. And then there was weird stuff like when I was up at the uh, psychogeographical conference in Huddersfield, and I, I took a, for the first time ever, I took people on a walking tour. So this is the first time I actually had to prove my point and just go to a car park I'd never been to. And, that, and and hopefully do a tour of it and hope that it was something in it. I thought this is going to be the first car park where there's absolutely nothing and I'm going to look really stupid. But it was it was brilliant. There was a weird broken fence with a desire path running through. There was weird bottles of what looked like urine in, 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 a, in a trolley in one of the trolley bays. And then weirdly, as I was, it turned out uh, two or three days later, someone told me that there was a dead body in the uh, car park. So oh just my where god yeah i remember that now yeah that is which oh. was weird because i didn't take that because it was such a big group i didn't venture into this sort of little it was like a sort of little micro forest you know in a wedge of land between the access road and the car park and i didn't sort of go across because there was too many of us and um if i had it would have looked it would have been very strange because that would have been the horror <laughs> that <we found. laughs> i know and it was weird because i'd written about there's quite a few cases of people being found dead in car parks sometimes sat at the wheel of their car it's one of those places where you can you can be dead and probably people wouldn't notice yeah, you think so busy. How could nobody notice that somebody's dead in a, dead in their car or their, uh, you know, that person was dead in the bushes, you know, kind of thing. But people are so engrossed in their own little. I'm going shopping. I'm doing this. Their road rage there that it easily slips by. It seems to encapsulate for me. Uh, that's why the book Car Park Life was really. I guess it was sort of about car parks, but really it was about Britain and about where we are um, in terms of our society and. The, the effect of the automobile and of mass-produced goods and supermarkets and capitalism on society, in which this is this is the thing you can you can kind of be surrounded by people and completely alone, and you can be dead in a place that you know full of life and then no one will notice. In fact, lots of stuff. Car parks seem to be a place where people go to carry out things in plain sight so they can hide uh, various drug deals and gun deals and and, and hits. And uh, assassinations have happened in car parks because they're just in the middle. You know, they're just in in, the, in the, they're so so in plain sight that they can kind of vanish almost. Yeah, no, massively. 
another one of the chapters I really enjoyed you did actually was um, in your new one on Official Britain was the one on hospitals because yeah. they just like encapsulate the circle of life, don't they, from beginning to end and they're charged with emotion like grief, fear, happiness, excitement, you know, and they're always thriving with activities, stories, emotions, and we kind of, they're not on our radar. They're like an afterthought. We we forget about them. Like we never, you know, and you were kind of saying in that book, like we're the center of the story and it's true, but like, why do you think we just never think about hospitals despite all of this happening, all these stories, all these layers of life going on in it? Well, I, th- I mean, in in a, in the, the in culture and and you know, sort of urban exploration, I think hospitals are quite, I guess, abandoned hospitals and, and haunted hospitals are also the stuff of kind of horror films, and so they're going to get a lot of attention. But then, I that's, for this book, I kind of ignored that and thought hospitals, like the living, actual, current, modern hospitals that we are around now, they are strange because they don't. There's two things I find interesting about them. So the first thing is the thing you're talking about. So the interior is this what you'd almost describe as a non-place. I mean, you could be in one hospital and you could be in another one. They're the kind of the white walls and the and the polished floors, and they're constantly being cleaned and constantly uh, wiped down and uh, disinfected. So they're they're like a whiteboard or a, or a or a set that's just constantly changed and removed, and where everything gets kind of there's no way of your dramas sticking to the place in the way they do somewhere else. And and they're quite anodyne spaces. Uh, yeah, obviously when we have you know, a loved one is dying or a child's been born or we've been rushed in for an emergency operation or we're going to get test results for a worrying thing that we've been experiencing. They become these heightened uh, zones of motion and the, even the micro details become really important. That strange picture that you see in the waiting room, the, the patterns on the floors, people tend to notice them because they're in this sort of space that they have to pace up and down and they, they begin to sort of notice the very, very small things. And so then the hospital changes, it becomes like heightened. And then this incredible story happens, which could be your your narrative. It could be your nativity story of your birth or your child's birth or the last breathing moments of a loved one. Huge, huge dramas. And then everything kind of gets cleared away. And, and then, then the, next, the next person comes along and it's their story. And all you've got left after the end of it is the, the story in your head, which over the years comes polished and maybe changed in the retelling. So my idea was that the interior of a hospital is only really partly an actual physical place. And is, the majority of it is this incredible anthology of stories. It's a mythic structure. But if you took everyone's stories of these hospitals, you would have this incredible empire of, of, of narratives, but you can't really see them. They only exist in the mind. So I, that, I was kind of interested in that idea that we all have our hospital stories, but they don't, they're not imprinted anywhere. And if you went back, it would just look like an empty white room. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think you're exactly right. That's probably why, because it's, they're so obviously clinical and then the the memories wiped, whereas I suppose with another building, you know, say all your belongings and photos and blah, 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 they remain there so they can kind of soak in that element of drama or story, whereas hospitals don't. And I did really love when you were talking about that part where it just, you know, like you say, you notice all the little things in the hospital. I actually went, spent quite a lot of time in hospital because my dad, when I was younger, he used to be in and out of there. And and, and it was, it was like the same thing. And I have a memory of always getting... I could only get these chocolates at the hospital, like Cadbury's Tasters. Do you know those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, like every time we go to the hospital, we get those. And that was like the one sort of nice thing about going to the hospital is we get these chocolates. But like you say, other than that, it was the same walls, the same stairs, the same room that you'd be going to time and time again. Um, And yet now, years on, we never – it was such a huge part of your life and you just don't, don't think about it. 
Well, I was always interested in, in, in what you said then about the Cadbury's tasters was also was also another point I was trying to make about it was we all have these uh, the books about mythology. And though I'm not talking about kind of mythology as many people think about it, I'm talking about st- stories that say something about yourself that you carry through your life or that you pass on to other to your family that may only be a weird like fictional version of it or a sort of synthesized bit. So your your hospital thing for that that, that memory of your father is is a chocolate. And it's that it's that thing that it becomes a coder. It's like a it, it's like that's your myth. So I had the thing where, but when I was I talk about in the book when I was born, it was my mum had these stuffed peppers, and she thought it was indigestion, but then it wasn't indigestion. It was me coming, and there was this whole the stuffed peppers has been a story. All I think about my birth is stuffed peppers. It was like a, it's like a sort of comic <laughs> yeah. thing that every because all these all the visceral weird stuff gets sort of cleared away, and you get end up this lovely beautiful sort of creative um, creation myths or narratives that things that and like that remind you, and they're very personal and they're not objective. They're not like the hospital. No one would else would think of Cadbury's Tasters in a hospital, but you do, and that that hospital and that thing is that's your experience. It's completely unique. Yeah, no, I never, and I never see those chocolates anywhere else. But if I did, you know, as soon as I see them, that would be like, these are hospital chocolates. <laughs> like, it yeah. wouldn't seem like any other form of chocolate. Um, I, I mean, I think the closest thing we have to, I was thinking after I read that chapter, was, you know, that TV show, 24 Hours in A&E, I guess that's the closest thing to expressing these stories and capturing them because they obviously follow the do you know the tv show i'm talking about or yeah well that's the thing because hospitals i mean i mean someone i mean people could argue with me and say well hold on gareth you know you're, you're saying hospitals but they're not they, you know there's so many t- tv dramas and you know there's holby city and whatever casualty and and i guess there are um but it feels like those things are, 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 are the Yes, of course, there's the drama of what's happening in the hospital, and I guess that's true. But I, I was, I was almost, yeah, thinking about the way that that becomes mythologized in our lives, and then how the the weird juxtaposition between that and then the hospital afterwards. I'd almost like my series of Casualty would be the bit after the incidents happened, and it's just the empty room mm. uh, or someone's memory of it or something. I just and 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 like going around, around the back of the hospital, so backstage where you've got this chaotic sort of improvised zone, sort of with weird kidney dishes thrown in between bits of duct and there's like biomass burners you know consuming all sorts of tissues and fuel and res- you know there's this is this kind of visceral mad place behind the scenes as well which so it gives that sort of the idea of the hospital theater it, literally it feels like a theater yeah and you also talked about the uh you know the sort of old and new buildings connected and that they're all like that aren't they that higgledy-piggledy jumbled up just odds and bods kind of things and you sometimes go to the older areas of the hospital and they do for me I feel that there is a a slightly spooky element to them remember I I went to get a blood test in like an old hospital I don't know it just had a smell about it and a really creepy vibe to it very dark and dingy and then you've got that kind of attached to this you know with the blaring lights and the white floors and I say it's just a bizarre place it really is and we just when it's not in in our lives, we we forget about it. Yeah, they 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 sort of vanish, don't they? When 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 it becomes a place you might go to for a, every week, for a year, or you know, for a month, and then it disappears again, kind of vanishes and uh, becomes just this sort of object on the skyline. Yeah, kind of leading on for that from that actually, you know, when you were sort of exploring the industrial estate and you found that plaque of the the dead girl. Honestly, that really struck me because I. You know, you said initially you might think this is devastating. Nobody cares about this girl and she's passed away. But then you were kind of saying, well, actually, strangers 
might come across this plaque unexpectedly and appreciate her and stuff. And that really got me thinking, you know, do you think exploring these kinds of places like Mm. the everyday, the edgelands of society can help people better come to terms with life and death and just the cycle of life, everything that comes in between? I think you certainly... One of the, if there's a theme of of unofficial Britain, it is the it's the, it's layers, and how a lot of the buildings, even the ones we that are retail or new or industrial, tend to get overlaid on these older places. Uh, particularly that area I was exploring, which was sort of it's an industrial estate that's the trading estate that's on the on the top of where the gas works used to be, and so and then that gas works again was on top of where the river used to be, and you get this sort of strange layers that you can kind of see that I call them thin places because you can almost peer through a hole in time in some of these um, industrial uh, areas and go go through sort of several stages back to the to the kind of rural past uh, and this and I was thinking about like when you have a, a museum or where someone's a plaque for someone who, who once worked at the because uh, for example that memorial garden is not just it's the plaque for the girl which I find really poignant there's also all the names of the dead from the war who worked at the gas works and died in the war but then this it's kind of become drowned by this sort of Amazon distribution center and other sort of big kind of buildings and sort of almost fading into this little pocket um and but then I was thinking, well, that in itself, that that industrial state will itself probably fade, and something else will come along. In the same way as all that was Docklands before, and so it. I hope that people from this book they don't necessarily just get nostalgia for what's gone, but they almost get the sense that it's everything is always in motion, and so they're yeah, like you say, the cycles the cycles turn, and it's not necessarily always a thing to lament and some of these things that we kind of we, we weep over and, and lament are, were, were themselves the intruders at one time they were once the carbuncles and the the ugly invaders and that they too some get sentimentalized to the point where we you know we love gasometers and we we kind of go and visit the old gasworks site uh as a, as a kind of tourist thing um will mm. we be doing that to trading estates and industrial estates one day yeah I think for me, it was just that thing of like, nothing's permanent and that's okay. Like, it's just, that's the cycle of life. And probably like when the people put the girl's plaque there, they probably never imagined it to be surrounded by all this, like you say, Amazon and all these industrial things. And it is, and things evolve. And it, and it's funny because I, I do feel like with buildings, people mourn buildings. I think they struggle when they go that initially like if they've known them their whole lifetime they grieve it and they feel really sad that that building's going to go that's the thing, that's what happened to me so when i went back to so i grew up next to the in the book i describe um growing up next to this chimney in glossop near manchester and that that chimney was only three years old when i moved there and i moved there in 1980 and it had only been built in 77 but to me it was it had been there forever and it was the it was so close to my house you could see it all the time it was like a it was the icon of the town it represented the whole place for me you could see it from the hills when you arrived it meant i was home i'd navigate to my house from it if i ever kind of got lost uh, and then i went back about three years ago, I think it was. Uh, it was gone. It had been knocked down, and it was really strange. It felt real, felt like an, an mm-hmm. absence, like a hole that something was completely missing. Not and not just from the, the physical environment, but also from my memory. Like there was a piece of me that had disappeared. Which, bearing in mind, this was a very contemporary chimney that was horrible. It was uh, really smelly, and and people complained about it and protested against it, and it, it to the point where they were violently attacking the factory at one point in the early eighties. That was something of, that entwined itself in my memory, and, and for good or bad, I kind of lamented its loss, really, without getting too nostalgic for it. But it's—I certainly felt it. I certainly felt that that was a piece of me that had gone. 
Yeah. Well, you kind of, you still, like when you've left home, you still picture everything as it was and it's not. And as I've come home recently, it's like stuff's changed big time. And it is kind of sad. I don't know why. You can't help it. It's just, I think there's a comfort in these monuments and markers that you know and have always seen. And then when they're gone, you're like, oh, it's not, it's not the me- the memory I had of it, you know? Yeah, I mean that's kind of I guess the, the idea of unofficial Britain in, in the concept of it is I suppose this idea that there's this, there's these places that are objectively interesting or, or, or historical, and then there's this unofficial la- layer which is all these things that we have that we connect with, where we've written ourselves and or our family histories or our community histories onto these backdrops that aren't really places of heritage and they're not really going to be saved or um, preserved and, and and maybe they are temporary and that's the, that's one of the sad things about it, that we've, we've written our lives onto bits of town and bits of cities that that are kind of temporary and that will you know in 30 years not be there anymore particularly in, in places like london where um where it's happened so quickly the whole sort of you know, boroughs can change character really really quickly and for the people who live there it must be you know grown, grown up there must be really strange well, yeah, because there's all the gentrification, isn't there, of a lot of places, and yeah, you know, suddenly stuff's torn down, tower blocks have gone up, and if, I suppose for future generations, <laughs> there they'll be the things that they eventually get torn down, you know, and they they were fond of, I expect. Well, that's it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's it's they'll it, it, that eventually that process must happen to everything because if you grow up. And the only thing near you is the, uh, the the new retail park that was built. Then that's that retail park is the place where you went and had your snog or had your first drink or had, there was dramas or, or it was just a place you remember being taken to as a kid. That that becomes the place, and that may have been this wonderful um, you know terrace housing before it, or it may have been a, a park. You know, but it do, it, it doesn't matter because you don't really have that memory of it. So we all we all adapt to where we live, and in that sense, that hopefully that opens Britain up for for magic and that means we can stop saying that we have to go somewhere else to to go on to, to go exploring or that these places are valid and these are not or these types of experiences are proper British experiences and these are not mm. uh, I know a lot of the retail stuff is, is tawdry and, and 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 badly built and everything but it's also it's also interesting and it is it's it's we have a right to kind of look at it in a, and, and explore it and, and not necessarily enjoy it but I think it's important to understand where we live and to tell stories about it and and not to edit these things out. Yeah, I feel like now's the perfect time for people to do this, honestly, isn't it? I mean, you can't go anywhere. So now, like, they should be getting out and having a look because what better time, really? Exactly. One of the accusations of the sort of psychogeography and those and sort of landscape writing and nature writers was it was an entitled thing because you had the time to sort of go out and stroll and 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 through these places and maybe that your your privilege of um, of where you come from would give you access that other people might not have. And, I, and that's true. But then there's also you can also do exactly what I'm doing just by going to Tesco's on your road. You can do it by just going to that weird alleyway behind the street. It can. All of these places are opened up. And if you've only got like a, you know, a limited lockdown walk, everything you need is there. I would challenge anyone, you know, uh, to be honest, I would find it harder if I lived in a remote rural area to, to find something of interest because I kind of I really like the. The juxtaposition of the I like urban stuff, and I also just like seeing human stories and residues. I find that sort of flames my imagination. But there's there's always something to see if you go out, and really look closely, and and allow yourself to slow down and and dwell and use your imagination a bit. Yeah, well, you found some crazy stuff like that doll as well that you found. That that was quite spooky, I must say. I mean, that uh, that junction, that's junction three of the M32, because uh, it, it cuts through Bristol, and um, again, that was the thing that destroyed. Uh, a multicultural community and 
really tore up the, the town city because it's a, like a concrete river just breaking through the middle of the city. Uh, and that, that, that junction is not very interesting on its own, but I just went on a random walk there. And yeah, I found a shrine with these seeds and nuts, sort of offerings in it, like a metal shrine with a bolted on bowl. And then, yeah, just over the motorway, this creepy doll with uh, hair entwined with the wooden straps and um, yeah. like uh, flowers in the hands of this kind of offering. Uh, when I went back again with a journalist, as once the book had come out, there was even more stuff there. I was, I talked about in the book it being like a bit like a stone circle or a sort of a Neolithic that way, the, the way the causeways joined and there was a circle thing with underpasses going through and sort of the offerings and stuff. Well, when I got there the last time, somebody actually built the council actually built a standing stone just to the oh side my God. of it. Wow. Uh, and then as I was there looking at the standing stone, thinking this is amazing. This is, I wish I'd been here before. I would put this in the book. This is exactly what I'm talking about. A woman came up to me with a, a she was carrying a dust buster type thing, a handheld hoover, and sort of demanded that I open it for her. And I couldn't do it. And she was saying, well, you're a man. You're supposed to be able to do this. And then she started railing about this standing stone and said it had been put there to stop cars parking. And it had been a dis- this disruptive sculpture to annoy the locals. And then she started railing about the junction and this the noise and the pollution. She lived there and she had a go at me. She said, you don't live here. You don't have to deal with it. I think she was accusing me of maybe romanticizing it anyway. <laughs> oh, it, was just, it was brilliant because it was all the things I thought, well, this is it. This is exactly what I'm writing about. This, this, this sort of place is so contentious and so important and politically charged and strange iconography of, of, of Neolithic stuff appearing. And when I went through the underpasses, I found all these esoteric book recommendations and stuff. It was just loads more than when I'd gone there the first time. It felt like, it felt like almost like every time I, go, I would go back there, there'll be something new to see in this very small area really so it's quite magical it was completely a random thing no one talks about that junction it's not famous it's not it's not any classic of its kind it's um it's just a sort of motorway junction in the middle of a city but it's 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 alive with 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 stories and 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 anger and emotion um which i find just find really interesting how did you kind of go about picking some of these places i know some of them had links to you but some of them did you just sort of think oh let's have a look i'll just pick here on the map or whatever or pretty much i mean it was the i i picked a few targets of places i wanted to go that weren't maybe the obvious places to look at um a couple of them so some of them were places uh because i write a lot of memoir and i do like to try and to express my theory that places are about ourselves and our communities and stuff i try to put myself into the books just as a way of showing that really we can all do that. I mean, my, my point of view is just my point of view, but I always look for that biological thread. So anyway, I went to some of the places for my youth. So that was that was a, a sort of first go. The second thing to do was just to pick somewhere and then go there and just pick a few kind of sites. I had rough ideas for chapters in mind. So I thought, well, if I went to Wrexham or I went to Grimsby um, or I went to uh, Northampton, so there were a few places I went to, I would just go and, I'll go right. Let's see what the industrial estate's like. Let's go to a multi-story. Let's go to a hospital, uh, and just see what happened. And that's and that's what I did. And so they, I tried not to follow too many kind of Atlas Obscura lists of weird British places or yeah. the, the, the creepy, the ten creepiest industrial estate. I, I, I tried to avoid those because I wanted to, I wanted to find the sort of magic in the everyday. So that to do that, I had to sort of walk the walk really and go and just go to any of them and they were they were all of interest in fact it got to the point where I, I, I didn't put all of them into the book because I didn't want to sort of repeat myself but the the stories that I was finding in one place were kind of appearing in other ones as well and so all the hospitals were were, were interesting you know you compare industrial states to thin places could you explain like how you see that sort of similarity there with, with them well thin places where the veil between this world and the other is thin and uh, 
whatever that your belief in the, in the other world. Um, certainly the play at the threshold where the world's kind of, you can seep between two worlds and they often these things often happen in, in sort of watery places but they can really be anywhere um and you it's like a, the idea of liminal space where something is one thing and also another and also a threshold well, that's kind of a thin that's a thin place and they exist in folklore um and, but they also i think exist now in urban areas in the, in the form of places like industrial estates where First off, you can't really tell where they begin and where they end. They're very uncertain spaces. They often uh, by canals and rivers at the edges of towns and marshlands. So they often form this ba- barrier between the urban and the rural. But or they're on the sites of old docklands, old factories, old aerodromes. Uh, or they sometimes they grow up sort of in these old Victorian housing estates where the houses can repurpose and things get knocked down and they kind of mutate. All of these places, there it's very the threshold is very thin because these aren't very developed sites. So you can almost pull away the asphalt and then you can see the cobbles beneath, or you, you you can feel the ancient marshland seeping through. And because of this, I've my my experience in the marshes in Hackney, which was one of these former industrial sites, there was this headless bear that was um the headless bears were found in the lee and then there was this myth of this bear that was roaming the marshes so it was sighted in 1981 and then again in the late 80s and again pre the olympics there was also a crocodile that was said to haunt the the river lee before the olympics felt like there was a lot of uh, a lot of the sort of neurosis and 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 guilt of of our human development were kind of playing out in these places where the old ancient lands were kind of seeping through and the memories and the ghosts of the deep past were, were seeming to haunt them so in hull in this book i, I talk about um in hull in the barmston drain which is a, a sightings of a werewolf called old stinker it keeps sort of uh, appearing and running off with a alsatian between its jaws or terrifying young couples and so that was another example of what i'd found in hackney this and this was the last that area was the last enclave of wolves in britain and so some people theorize that it's kind of this again this this guilt for the past and for what we've done to the land before is haunting uh, that area so i feel like that's that the, those industrial states are good places to kind of get that sense of uh, liminality yeah no massively um have you ever thought about writing about rubbish dumps or anything you know, like the dump where you take your old telly and your old chair and all of that, because I was at one the other day and I feel like there's a lot going on in those places. Would you ever consider it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly so that. If, if in, a, in a, yeah, it could have been a chapter of the book, definitely. I, I chose those chapters, or not a random, but I just suddenly just picked, right, these are the, some of the places. But the loads, yeah, those would be good. There's all sorts of, those zones, I mean, you could always... It, they're like a bit like industrial sites. They're kind of they're, they're sort of improvised and they're usually bolted onto the side of something. And there's also communities going on there. And there's the the people who work there. And there's, there's those strange piles where they're taking out the, the the stereos and the things that could be useful to them. And there's there's all sorts of I guess little deals going on and trading and and also the, you're not always sure who's in charge or what's happening. That's why I quite like about those sort of areas. You go in and there's a you can walk into them freely, but the, you get the sense that. You know, is that person actually working there? Why is that thing on fire? Should it be on fire? Um, and that's the thing about those sort of rubbish dumps, those big car crushery kind of places in the Docklands in London where I explored. There was also this sort of incredible noise of heavy metal and these piles of cars, um, all sort of in this old Victorian sort of residential area, which it was once it was once where the people who worked in the docks lived. And it was you could really feel that layering, and also just the irony of the heavy metal. That's also the site of the um, a heavy metal club mm. called the Bridge House Two. So there was these kind of weird sort of in between the car crushers and the, and the, and the thing, it could also be like a music venue. And 
and there was an Afro, there was an Afrobeat club as well, and, and an ancient pub that had closed down, but that used to be where all the gangsters hung out, and that was all happening in this what looked like effectively a big pile of rubbish with bits of Victoriana scattered between it and pylons running along. There's so much going on, and it and and it's all really felt really fluid. Mm. Do you think you'll ever like put that in a book at some point? Yeah, well, in rubbish dips, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think well, all of them. I'd, I'd like to. I mean, if I if I do another one like this, yeah, there's there's a whole load of other spots. I guess that would that would definitely be one. I mean, that like a bit like the industrial states has got that because one of the things I talk about in the book is how a lot of these places that are kind of ugly and weird like that have become appropriated by culture so we've got this idea of uh so the, the rubbish tip always thinks to me it's the guy it's the guy who gets crushed in the car whose whose body's put in there by the gangsters <laughs> or it's so sort of denouements in films where someone's sort of having a fight up the rubbish tip or you know, there's that and there's also something quite apocalyptic about it and sort of wally and and all this, you know that kind of last man on earth type things mm. so i feel like there's a there's a sort of apocalyptic thing going on with rubbish tips uh, and and they, they the same way as industrial states appear a lot in Doctor Who and and, and things like Life on Mars and stuff. They they we we kind of use they, they're almost like a they're in the cultural memory. They're they're quite important, I think. Yeah, I've also noticed on industrial states they seem to have a lot of desire lines. People cutting shortcuts, walking through bushes, not where they're supposed to go. I don't know if you came across that in the ones you've looked at, but I used to work on one, so there were all these shortcuts people had made. Yeah, there's a, I can't remember what it's called, but I went to a, a, a business park in Birmingham. So this was like not really industrial, but it was, it was those sort of office buildings, but it, had, it was all laid out like a town and it had all these little paths and where the workers would go and have their lunch. And there was benches and there was, little, there was a fountain. There was little sort of parkland bits. With, it was a kind of place, I guess it was designed because when people go for lunch, but they can't really, it was too, it was too out of town to, um, for them to go anyway. You can't just nip to the shop. So there was a Greg's in it. And this whole place was like, it had the feel of a town and, and there was like all sorts of little paths and, and places. And I guess people having romantic trysts and I don't know, it was weird. It was a bit like some of the places I explored in car park life, retail parks, which almost have, they have road names and cul-de-sacs and they try to be like real towns and they have all the same things you'd see in a normal town. Yeah. Little sort of paths where people like to go and little hideouts and yeah. And, and couples strolling around, but it's just a, a business park. Yeah. No, it is really bizarre, isn't it? Another thing I was thinking is at one time the industrial evolution you know we kind of romanticize a lot of those things like steam trains and that nowadays when at the time it actually destroyed like a lot of people's crafts and everything and I guess at the moment we're kind of having a similar-ish thing going on with technology advancing and everything do you think people are ever going to romanticize roundabouts motorways car parks because we do do that now with Victorian stuff so what I yeah, when I so the, all the, all the places I talk about in the book, it almost feels like you could say, "Oh, well, these are the, the new super modern places." But my, I was thinking, well, they're not really, are they? They're so, they're really old. There, yeah. if we think about it, this, is mainly the stuff I'm writing about in this book is kind of 1945 onwards, it's post-war, and you know, most people, it's like my dad was born in 1946, uh, so they, it feels like that gen- whole generation. Um, who are now elderly? That's that's they've no that's all they've known. They've already only known sort of uh, mo- you know, motorways and pylons and stuff. So I feel like it's an almost an old world. It's but very recent old world. And I think the internet has really drawn a line under it. I feel I feel like in a way I'm describing something that's already disappearing into history because I'm talking about an almost an old analog world, very much based around the motor car. And a lot of the things I talk about are kind of based around cars in this book. And I think that what will happen at some point. I think the pandemic has also added to this. I think there's an old way that is just slipping behind us now. And I think when we, I think the places we romanticize are the things that 
we've lost so that and they represent the time that is lost so like the way we, we might romanticize old toys from the 1960s or they, they it's because we're almost thinking that they're a lost time and they, they these things won't be made again and i think that's what's going to happen with a lot of the structures that we talk about i talk about in the book so i think when the age of the automobile and, and global warming and pandemics and the explosion of the internet kind of create this new virtual world and these old analog worlds where we hang out in car parks and uh, romanticize sort of uh, pylons will be will be it will be in the past and i think that uh, that will happen i don't know how long it'll take maybe 100 years maybe 50 years i think it's already happening now this book is a, in a way what i'm trying to do is preempt everything i'm i want it to be just what i call the first shoots of future folklore and the first the, the first signs of maybe us these seeing these modern structures as kind of haunted and romantic and about our past and i think they are becoming that for a lot of us and for young people you know they're, they're, there's a whole new world opening up so i i won't take long and i certainly if there's a huge shift in society i mean if, if um you know if civilization collapses or you know that then these things will be completely magical we'll be looking the people will be looking at these huge motorway structures and cr- incredible motorway junctions and thinking what people came down these roads and smoked joints and these underpasses and left offerings and uh you know and these great ley lines across the country and uh, uh, ring roads and so i think and these strange mounds i don't know i feel like that that will happen obviously one day but uh, as for now i really do feel there's a lot of people who are already feeling that this is a kind of lost world that's disappearing behind us yeah, I just think it's that thing because people, well, not everyone, obviously, but the majority of society, I feel like they can't get over that. They see these things as ugly and gross. And I, it always makes me think, did Victorians think that about steam trains or something? Because, you know, people, they romanticise them so much now as these lovely, beautiful things of the past. And as you say, we're kind of in that transition now with the internet and everything and it almost feels like it's accelerating a little bit at the moment just because now we're doing everything virtually people are working from home this isn't a thing that was happening before people can't meet up and like you say people are you know going to these car parks going to these malls all that and 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 it can't happen now so Maybe it will speed it up. People will be like, "I oh, remember the days when we used to go and hang out and everything." And yeah, it's like it was like my my parents when they they were baby boomers, and they they absolutely loathed the idea of living in a Victorian house. They did everything that was the, that was that that was a horrible, ugly past of slums and tenement buildings, and so they always bought new houses. And so I've always, I you know, and I love Victorian houses, and it's it was because it, I didn't have it, so, and they find it weird. Why would you buy the old drafty weird thing that my grand mother lived in and i think because we've you know we come around in these this old sort of victorian stock that was demolished in the, in the sort of 40s and 50s suddenly becomes this thing that's you know million pound house in london that completely desired that's just an example in the, gent- in the gentrification thing of how quite quickly something can go from absolutely undesirable and seemingly ugly and, and disgusting and mass-produced to becoming something romantic and beautiful I suppose that was the other thing with that era. That was the era of mass production as well. Like they'd never had that before. They'd never had such food could be transported quickly. Things could be made quickly. Farming could be done quickly. Like it was, it would have, I mean, now when we look at it, we think, oh, it can't have been that drastic, but it would have been back then. I mean, really like your life would have changed greatly. Well, the idea I and mean, the, the advent of train travel must have been this, 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 the extraordinary change and how quickly you could get from somewhere. The way the geography changed and the topography was quite radical. Uh, maybe not as, as radical as the internet, but it must just just the same. And like as a, and the same as 
I mean, all the every 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 era, people are just living in the everyday. We kind of look back and think people had some kind of consciousness that were in some hallowed time of the great rural past, or in there, or they weren't. They were just living in the now and mm. in the modern era. And then there was always stuff that was dying out and changing and disappearing. Um, and partly one of the one of the reasons people tell stories and use folklore is is to protect against that and the, to protect the, the, the histories, even though the buildings may fall and the politics may change and things may die you've got these stories and so i can't see why we can't do the same thing with uh, the 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 places of the late 20th century so in a way we should tell stories about these places and and, and bring these things in and talk about the, the car parks and the hospital corridors and the the junkyards and the strange chimneys and the cooling towers because they they are the thing that we are passing on they're our experience of the world and they're they're completely entwined with our experience and so maybe it's it's time for us to tell these stories and, and that's the way to protect it, I guess, and to keep it going. Yeah, who knows, in 100 years, you might be like the book everyone looks back on of like, oh, yeah, this is Gareth, he wrote this. Like, <laughs> he started it all, the appreciation. That would be a of... nice thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, thanks for chatting with me. Really enjoyed it. And, I mean, it's, if there's anything else you'd like to say, like where people could find you at and get the book if they want to read it. Yeah, so the book is um, Unofficial Britain, Journeys Through Unexpected Places. You can get it on the usual online uh, places, outlets and uh, bookshops. It's in hardback at the moment, um, Elliot and Thompson. Um, so just Google that. Or you can go to unofficialbritain.com, which is my website. I say it's mine. I, it's my way. I, I, it's a website I host and I post my bits on there, but also by other, stuff by other people. That's kind of what originally started the book. That was what caught the publisher's eye. And rather than just take everyone's work and put it into a sort of compendium of blog posts i just wrote a whole new thing but that's the origin of it it was a website i just put posted to write about unexplored or overlooked or neglected spaces uh or everyday places but written about in an unusual way that's basically the remit so there's that and you can find me on um twitter and at hackney marshman or uh, brit unofficial So there we have it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you like the sound of Gareth's work, don't forget to check out his books and his website, Unofficial Britain. And if you enjoyed this episode or you've been enjoying the podcast in general, please do consider supporting the show. I do have a Patreon page. For as little as a dollar, you can get lots of extra things like episode extras, previews and trailers on guests before anybody else. And if that's not your thing, I also have a Ko-fi page where you can give a one-off donation. This will just contribute to the maintenance of the podcast, so the hosting platform fees and also the website fees. However, if you're a bit tight on cash at the moment or you don't wish to do that, that's absolutely fine. You could always just leave the show a rating and review. That really, really helps me out too. Other than that, that's all from me. And for anything else Sense of Place podcast related, head over to the website, which is senseofplacepod.com. Hope you have a great week and I'll speak to you soon.